Welcome back to Libro Mania, a new podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. If you love books and all the things that make books great, this podcast is for you. Each week, I'll be presenting conversations with authors, designers, publishers, artists, biographers, critics, and scholars about the various things that make books worth celebrating. We will be talking about book design and bookstores, book printing and book collecting. We'll be talking about the lives and problems of famous authors and the science behind our love of books. We'll be talking with working writers about their process and with scholars about the art of writing biography. This is chapter three, in which I investigate the popularity of one of the 20th century's most popular and beloved novels. Back in October, PBS ran an eight-episode TV series called The Great American Read, in which it sought to discover what America's favorite novel really is. Nearly 4.3 million votes were cast, choosing from 100 finalists that included titles as varied as the Harry Potter series and the Chronicles of Narnia, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre, Gone with the Wind and the Lord of the Rings, and yes, even Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, and the works of James Patterson. As USA Today wrote, in the end, the winner, the book deemed America's most popular novel was, bum bum bum, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's coming-of-age novel from 1960. It's no surprise, really. I, I shouldn't think any of you would be very surprised about that. In fact, when I saw who the winner was, I said to myself, out loud, I think, well, duh. But then I got to thinking about why it's so popular, so beloved, why it's endured so well and even so long compared to many of the other books of the last century. And I figured, what's the point of having a podcast like this that explores what makes great books great if you're not going to answer questions like that? So in today's episode, I'll be contemplating that question. Why is To Kill a Mockingbird so popular? Not just why is it well-liked or why do people still read it in schools, but why is it quite as popular as it has become? To help me, I spoke with two experts on the subject. First, I spoke with Mr. Adam Andrews, who is the director of the Center for Lit and the author of Teaching the Classics, and he's also the host of the popular podcast, Bibliophiles. Adam's a good friend of mine and one of my favorite bookish hangs, so I figured this was an obvious topic. We chatted about the literary merit of the book, focusing in particular on why it's so popular for schools and why so many people read it at such a young age. Then I chatted with Dr. Joseph Crispino, history professor at Emory University and the author of the new book, Atticus Finch, The Biography. Harper Lee, her father, and the making of an American icon. Dr. Crispino and I focused on the character of Atticus Finch and the place of the book and the culture at large. I'm grateful to both of these gentlemen for joining me. I think you'll enjoy their insights quite a bit. So let's get right to it. First up, here's my conversation with Adam Andrews as we try to get to the bottom of the popularity of To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, first of all, thank you for being here, Adam. As always, it is a pleasure to talk books with you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So you run a thing called Center for Lit. The Center for Lit? Center for Lit, right? Center for Lit, right. So given that you run a thing called Center for Lit, it seemed like you were an appropriate person to talk to about literature. So figured I'd get my friend Adam Andrews on the line and we could talk about just that. Well, I appreciate the invite. Are you a huge uh, To Kill a Mockingbird fan? Well, I do have a picture of the, uh, uh, a poster of one of the covers from the sixties on the wall of my office. So I guess you'd probably have to say yes. <laughs> yeah. But have you actually read the book? I have read the book a time or two. Yes. <laughs> so it's not just the cover art. You're, you're not just, it's not big, just the cover. Art, you're no. not into like 1960s cover art collecting. <laughs> well, I am, but uh, there's other reasons for my uh, interest in Mockingbird. Yeah. And that particular cover. Art, yeah. So when was the first time you read it? I read it as a, probably a sixth grader. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, 
and I don't really can't really remember the circumstances under which I read it. I think I might have just you know found it in my mom and dad's house and yeah, and uh, you know, had one of them tell me that's that's a classic and 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 read it that way. I was too young, I remember, to um, to really get the um, well to put it bluntly. I, I didn't really understand what the trial was all about. Yeah, yeah. I certainly right. didn't understand what the what the unspoken ramifications of the trial. Sure. Uh, at the climax of that novel, were all about. So you might say that 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 part of the weight of the novel was kind of was lost on me, mm-hmm. but it had a, a pretty profound effect, uh, nevertheless, in some other ways. Yeah. Do you think that that's a that, that that's the right age for that, or would you say that it probably you know if you if you were well, well wait, when did you give it to your kids? You have multiple kids. Uh, our kids, yeah. We, we're, yeah, the Andrews family is the homeschooling family, and we have six kids, and so we generally give it to them as seniors in high school. Okay, but you read it as a sixth grader, you said. So, would you think the sixth grader is too too young? Just Absolutely, you got so you so you'd say too young. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, and I, the reason I I say that is that in order to really understand what Harper Lee is going for literarily, you need to be able to follow along with the subject matter that she's constructed. And it's a, uh, in my view, a little mature for the, mm. for the sixth grader on average. So uh, Flannery O'Connor um, famously called it a, she said, I wonder if all those people who are buying up that book realize they're buying a children's book or something like that. Some classic Flannery O'Connor snark, you know, and it was in a letter, I think. So who knows what she actually, you know, she's probably just picking a little bit of fun, but do you, um, what do you think of that that contention by O'Connor that this is essentially a children's book? Given that you would say read it for read it and you know, as, as an older, I don't know. Kid. I have no idea what uh, O'Connor would have meant by that, uh, so it's hard to comment. But um, I, I certainly think um, I certainly think Harper Lee was was after a different game than O'Connor. That was, I think that would probably be fair. But in terms of <laughs> most, be, most people it, are. In terms of it being, in my view, for slightly older readers, that's a that's a statement about the subject matter and the content and the emotional maturity level. I think that's necessary to be able to to hold those hold those things and to see them as as dramatic and literary elements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and to understand that you're reading a work of art and it's dealing with certain content and to be able to be uh, to have a step of separation. Um, probably yeah. need to be a little bit older in order to do that effectively. I would say. So when it comes to so so basically. It seems to be taught in most schools, many schools anyway, including public schools, in that ninth, ninth, tenth grade range. It seems to be the most common area, from what I can tell, and doing a very cursory overview of some research on the question. And it's often one of the first books that students read from the perspective of they're they're going to write a a sort of essay about the book and they're going to identify all these very specific literary elements and then they're going to produce some kind of an essay. I was reading a, um, an article in which the, the writer said something like, this is probably the first book where you um, had to write an essay and the, you, prob- you probably answered one of these four prompts and then just list <laughs> four most common prompts. And it's probably true that, you know, most there's like just sort of the canon of the canon of To Kill a Mockingbird prompts. But right. why do you think that it's a book that the, that, that sort of way of reading it has become so popular that let's give it to a ninth or a 10th grader, you know, in schools all across the country. Let's use it as one of the first books that kids are learning to write, you know, literary analysis about what is it about it that makes it 
popular for that? It's a great question. And I think that the answer, in my view, the answer is because its subject matter and its theme and the purpose of its author is perfectly consonant with the plan and program of modern American public education, which is to inculcate sanctioned opinions about politics, <laughs> about race relations, pure and simple. It's a beautiful literary masterpiece level treatment of, of mainstream sanctioned political, social, and racial opinions. And so it's the perfect tool for an American high school lit class. I can't tell if you mean that as a compliment or an insult. <clears throat> that's just a statement of fact. I think <laughs> that's the reason that, that in my view, that's the reason that To Kill a Mockingbird is the, is the most um, popular, well-known, beloved uh, American classic because yeah. it was written in 1960 at the height mm -hmm. of the civil rights unrest mm -hmm. about that topic. Yeah. And it put, it set that topic in a glorious treatment and, and made it universal mm. and made it not just a story about Scout and Jim, not just a story about, um, about the race relations in a small Southern town and not just a coming of age story about two kids, but a coming of age story about a whole country and a whole mm. nation delivered right at the moment when that coming of age process was, was coming to a head. It's like a national yeah. buildings, Roman. Exactly right. I would say that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a buildings Roman for the nation mm. and, and um, educators in the years since 1960 look back and say, what is the number one thing as an educational establishment that we're trying to do in creating American citizens? What's the, the number one idea that we want them to come out of our system with in their hearts? And Harper Lee basically is, is giving him that very idea. Hmm. And as I said before, she's doing it in such a beautiful way, literarily, mm -hmm. that they can kill two birds with one stone, give yeah. them exposure to great literature and, and turn out the right kind of political and social thinkers. Yeah, there's lots of books out there that attempt to produce a certain kind of person <laughs> or a certain kind of thinker, or at least a certain kind of thought, but they don't all do it with the sort of precision and, uh, and beauty that, that Harper Lee manages to do. I think you're right. And I think this may be, this may throw, shed some light on the, the comment you just delivered me this supposedly from Flannery O'Connor. Um, in that sense, it is very, um, it's very plain. It's very broad. It's not subtle. It doesn't proceed by um, obfuscation. It's not ironic. There's nothing hard to get about the message of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And it's I guess- There's sincerity about it that is unusual. It's very clear. And it's also, you can almost, you can almost hear Lee, Harper Lee doing the same thing that American educators have done with the book ever since. See children, this is how we should think. This is how we should behave. And maybe that's what O'Connor in that, in that comment is, uh, maybe that's what she meant. Hmm. So, um, nevertheless, despite all this stuff, which I, again, you may be, it may be considered in a compliment or an insult. You, you, you <laughs> have great affection for this book. It seems like you, Oh my goodness. Yes. It's you a, have the post story. It's a wonderful story. So from a, uh, why, so why, I guess the question then is why do you love it so much? What as a literary, I don't want to insult you by calling you a scholar, but by, 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 uh, <laughs> but thank you very much. <laughs> but, but as a literary, as a literature teacher, as someone who loves literature and loves discussing it and spends your day in, in the midst of it and surrounded by, it, um, and by the posters that it produces, um, what is it about that, that has led you to, to have that much affection for it? I mean, this is certainly a, 
some, you know, I'm asking you a very subjective question, but I think that hopefully we'll get at some more. Yeah. Oh, I could go on and on and on. I mean, at, at center for lit, which is the, the literature curriculum books and reading organization that I work with. uh, One of the main things we're always trying to do with readers is help them to understand literature by looking at its structural elements, looking at setting as a, as an element of literature and see how authors use setting and construct setting in order to emphasize their themes then doing the same thing with conflict and with plot and with characterization. One of the great things about Mockingbird is in all of these areas, it, it is particularly skillful and particularly evocative. And if you take any one of those, those components separately and just, just glory in the way, for example, that Harper Lee creates a setting then you come away with, with just a, um, mm. a deep experience of literary art at its best. Her opening chapter when she describes the heat in the summer in the south of the 1930s yeah um, puts you in the world in a way that you just rarely do you have that experience i mean i can think of hawthorne doing it in the scarlet letter and twain doing it in in huckleberry finn but she's up there with hawthorne and twain in terms of her ability to create a setting Mm. that little that line where she says uh um, the the uh, the sweat and sweet talcum you know became like frosting on the skin of the of the of the <laughs> ladies and they had to have yeah. a, two showers a day and you know, <laughs> it was hotter then and you know I just it, the setting that's is just my favorite one of my favorite lines it was hotter then yeah and and so if you take any of the other structural elements of fiction she's just as good the characterization of of Jim and Scout and the way she chooses a narrative voice to to do it in the first person through Scout's eyes but the wonderful the wonderful juxtaposition of Scout the child as the character in the story and Scout the articulate, subtle, sensitive grown-up who's actually giving us her her childish recollections. The combination of those two perspectives is stirring and powerful and allows us, for example, to see Atticus through two sets of eyes at once as the object of of her childlike um, hero worship and then as also the object of a, of, a, of a more mature hero worship. She loved him as a child and looked up to him. She respects him as an adult in the retelling, and it burnishes his character and stature from two directions. Elements of characterization like that are just, they, they put her in very, very elite company. Mm. I could go on and on about the other structural elements of the story, but they all work together. I mean, she's a five-star talent on, in all areas. And so the book is, is, is thoroughly uh, strong in every way. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Atticus Finch himself. Uh, he was—he's one of the reasons why this this book was named as the the great American. Well, not the great American novel per se, but the most popular of all American novels. But you can't have a novel be in the running for a great American novel, as most critics consider this to be, without having a really excellent cast of characters. And Scout and Jem are obviously um, the characters through which you know we see the world. They're kind of proxy for us as as the audience. But the there's like the moral fabric of the story, and and in some ways the um, the weight of the story is centered around Atticus Finch. And would you? Well, first of all, would you agree with that? Well, I think that he's certainly the uh, I, I would call Atticus the most important secondary character in. Mockingbird. And, and the, the reason I say he's a secondary character is that he doesn't have protagonist status in my reading because his character isn't confronted with the kind of soul changing, um, character molding 
conflicts. He doesn't go through um, an existential change of perspective. He's more a, a catalyst that uh, against which the other characters bounce and um, in, in connection with the other characters receive their change. So, mm-hmm. so I think he's the most important of the, of the other characters in the story. And mm-hmm. I think that Scout and Jem and, and uh, Make'em Alabama as a town mm-hmm. are, are more the, the protagonists mm-hmm. of the story. But yeah, he's definitely, with, without, without Atticus, uh, no Mockingbird for sure. Why do you think that he has sort of lingered in the consciousness of American readers? Well, readers really worldwide um, as, this, as such a crucial, beloved, meaningful character. It, it, because on the one hand, it, you know, there is this sort of moral depth to him sort of ethical depth to him. Um, and then that's somewhat complicated, of course, in the recent sequel that came out. Um, but what, what about him as a character? You talk about how she manages to draw these really richly created characters. Really, They feel like real people. In what ways does that manifest itself through Atticus Finch? And, and is that why, and, and is the, well, is that why people love him so much? <laughs> well, that's, I think that might be two questions. I, I, I wonder if, if people love him so much because... Uh, and 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 this also probably explains the um, the fairly negative reaction to the the sequel that was recently published. Mm-hmm. People love him so much because he is um, he's perfect. They <laughs> love him because he he doesn't have any. Uh, he's not a multifaceted character. He does have a history, mm-hmm. a context, a personal context that we can put this particular struggle with the trial of Tom Robinson into. But he's never wavered in all his history from his morally pure. Uh, doggedly determined, selfless, self-sacrificial stance toward the world. He is instantly ready at any point because of his principles to lay down his life. And we love this. There's nothing to criticize about Atticus, which makes him a, which makes him a beloved character on the one hand. And then something of a, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but something of a flat character on the other. Mm -hmm. The Atticus of Mockingbird would never do anything untoward ever. And for for this reason, he's an easy example. He's an easy exemplar to give to children. Hmm. And so the second, the the sequel where um, the prequel, I guess you would call it where (laughs) Lee begins her, her creation of Atticus by making him much more multifaceted. It just drove people nuts. I think when it first came out, do you think that, uh, I mean, uh, is that well, the way you're putting? I mean, is that a, was what you're saying a criticism of the book? Oh, of Mockingbird? Yeah. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Because because every great work of literature needs a combination of the characters that the story's really about that you're following, mm-hmm. the ones that are that are that are coming of age and seeing the world through new eyes and becoming adults, and in the case of Mockingbird, having their innocence torn away. You need to have those characters that you're watching and they've got to be able to interact with a cast of background characters that give their journey context and meaning. And Atticus is chief among these. Scout and Jim are learning that the world they assumed existed in the halcyon summer days of playing around with Dill and trying to get Boo Radley to come out isn't actually as idyllic as they expected it to be. And it's, it's Atticus who impels them to that realization by dragging them into the, the world of the trial and also helps them be all right through the transition. He would, he was there when I looked in on him. He would be there when Jem waked up in the morning. 
that's Atticus's role. He is our, he's our context for the change that we all must go through as we come of age. So it's not a criticism at all, but it's, it's necessary in the literary structure of the piece that he not be changeable, that he be a little bit more, I mean, flat is a, is a derogatory word. I don't mean it badly, but that he be static and, and, and foundational in the sense of not changing. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. A couple more questions for you um, quickly. I know we don't have, don't have all day to do this as much as I would love to do that. Do you um, have a passage in particular that, that you love from this book that I don't know if you have your book handy, but that you might be able to either describe for us or read to us. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, do you need to talk while you find it? Well, it's, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Talk for just a second or maybe we could just cut a section out where I, well, no, what you don't think this is good, good radio. It's good podcast content. <laughs> right? part with my, I guess you can't see that my head is actually down in my copy of <laughs> people, secret, people quietly looking for text for pages to read. But I have a copy of a, uh, there's a, there's a life magazine, um, special edition on, you know, called the enduring power of to kill a mockingbird. It's got all kinds of stuff about the book and the movie and whatnot. Oh yeah. And on the cover is an image of Gregory Peck reading to kill a mockingbird. So you and Gregory Peck have something in common right now. <laughs> I found it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. My favorite passage in the story. I'm probably not alone in this. This is probably, uh, this puts me in a gigantic group of, of lovers of the story is in the last uh, chapter when scout walks Boo Radley home mm. and um, lets go of his hand. She says, he gently released my hand, opened the door, went inside and shut the door behind him. I never saw him again. And then she has a little vision standing there on the Radley porch. It says she, um, I turned to go home. Streetlights winked down the street all the way to town. I had never seen our neighborhood from this angle. And she describes her view of her very familiar neighborhood from a new vantage point. And then in this in this uh, moment of seeing the, the world from a new perspective, she has a vision. And it's... Um, you know, it's, it's a vision kind of like the, the visions in a Flannery O'Connor story where it's a kind of a divine, it's not a divine one in Harper Lee's lingo and her vocabulary, but, yeah. but she has a vision of, of a world where uh, we all see things from different perspectives and we have uh, the ability to, um, as she says here in, the, in this paragraph, she says, Atticus was right. One time he said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough. Hmm. I think that's a great passage because it summarizes really the game that Harper Lee is shooting at in all of these interlocking stories about mockingbirds being killed unnecessarily and then about children and towns and nations coming of age to realize who they really are and what kind of world they live in. The game she's shooting at is... If you walk around in somebody else's shoes, then you can really understand them. Mm. And I, th- I love the way that she she puts it in such a nice image there at the end of her story. Yeah, and I like that the that concept you were talking about just now of coming of age and understanding who you really are. That's both you've got to understand what's good about yourself and what's bad about yourself, right? Yeah, you gotta, yeah. You gotta know what it is that I need to sort of reinforce and pursue, um, and then but also what do I need to turn away from? And yeah, that, I think that's, that's really in true in that, in that image that she's creating that both those things are in play as well. Yeah, they really are. And I think Atticus, um, in his way represents the better, uh, our better natures, right. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and Bob Ewell represents our our baser natures. And I think you're right that both of those things are in play. And those two characters, uh, equally flat, by the way, hmm. equally static, represent those the two poles of of um, what's in all of us, not just individually, but but communally as a nation. And uh, the key to navigating between those extremes in some sort of reality is is quote unquote standing on the Radley porch. Hmm. Do you, okay. My final question: What do you think of the of the sequel? What's your opinion of it? You say you'd mentioned that people were getting bent out of shape about the portrayal, the kind of adjusted portrayal, if you will, of of Atticus Finch. But what's your take on it? Well, that's a that's a we could talk a long time about that one. I, I it's, it's fascinating to me that that was released when it was, that it was written when it was, and to see the two the two novels. Um, flipped in order in their kind of historical order and to see how the, the, uh, the second one to kill a mockingbird kind of emerged from what I can only imagine were editorial comments on the first one it was just a fascinating thought experiment to me, but, but literally and, and thematically thought it was really interesting. The, um, the ambiguity that was, uh, that was much more a part of that, um, go set a watchman, um, in some ways more interesting because I think ambiguity is where, where the great artistic interest lies. There weren't as many cut and dried characters, not even scout was as cut and dried in Watchmen as she, as she was in Mockingbird. And I can see why Mockingbird was the, was the, the runaway success and why that's the one they went to, you know, they went to press with instead. And, and it perfectly explains in my view how it, it became so popular but um, but the other one is very interesting as well, and I and I think contemplation of the um, of the the development of personal characters in Gosetta Watchmen uh, is is really really fruitful. Mm. They're closer to reality, I think, in in that one than they are in Mockingbird. Mm. Mm. But maybe because not. there's something about Atticus. I mean, we've talked about Atticus already, but there's something about him that we love. But he's also we have a hard time imagining him walking in the room. <laughs> you know, he's a character from literature. He's a, he's an archetype. Yeah. And you know, the Atticus of Watchmen, I think is, is more a real person. I think that I, when you said that, I immediately thought of Gregory Peck walking in the room, which then made me realize that maybe one of the great accomplishments of the movie, I mean, it's, it's a great movie in many ways. It's well-written. The, the adaptation is, is really, is really well done. Um, the, all the other, the acting is really well done. Um, but, Gregory Peck managed to sort of take this archetype as you, as you called him and give him flesh and blood in a way that seemed to, he, he was able to kind of make him into a real character in a way. Oh, that, yeah, I agree. Like, if he wasn't that way, the movie wouldn't work and movies and books, uh, movies and novels obviously work on different planes in our imaginations. Uh, but, but Gregory Peck, and that has to have enhanced the sort of, um, the legend, I guess, of Atticus Finch and of, I would definitely agree of, with that. End of this book. And of course, the movie came out relatively quickly after the book was published. It's not like they waited 40 years and then did it. So they, they came into the sort of American uh, consciousness at the same time. How many people read, read the book, wrote the essays, and then watched the movie in their ninth grade literature class between since 1967 or whenever it was? They, read, they watched the movie instead of reading the well, book. And right. the I, was, I figured I'd give people the benefit of the doubt, which maybe, <laughs> they may have been foolish. Um, well, hey, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. Uh, this is great fun. I may have to call you about some other books as they come up, but To Kill a Mockingbird's a great one. I will uh, let you get back to staring at that poster on the wall for the rest of your afternoon. Hey, thanks, David. Good to be here. Anything you want to plug? What's going on with the Center for Lit? 
Center for Lit has got a million and one things going on. Our website, centerforlit.com, is filled with resources for readers and teachers and students. In particular, though, we've got a podcast uh, that's related to all things literary called Bibliophiles. And the Center for Lit crew gets together. There are four or five of us, depending on the episode. Hash out everything we can think of in terms of ideas related to the great books and the great conversation. Mm. So we invite you to join us. Bibliophiles, it's on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find it on our website, centerforlit.com. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I love the show. I hope people will, will subscribe and leave reviews and leave stars and all the things that help podcasts out. It's a great podcast, everyone. So go check that out. Adam, again, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks so much to Adam Andrews for joining me to talk about the literary merits and the literary place of To Kill a Mockingbird. To learn more about Adam's work, you can head over to centerforlit.com or make sure you search Bibliophiles wherever you get your podcasts and listen now. It's a really great podcast if you love literature, particularly the teaching of literature. Of course, like I mentioned, there's more to To Kill a Mockingbird than just the literary merit of it. It still has this place in the culture, and in particular, there is this character of Atticus Finch who is so beloved. Adam and I referenced that a little bit in our conversation there. And that's where I wanted to talk to Dr. Joseph Crispino. He is the department chair of history at Emory University. And as I said, he's the author of Atticus Finch, The Biography, Harper Lee, Her Father, and the Making of an American Icon. That book came out in 2018, so I hope you'll find a copy of that wherever you get your books. So here he is. Here's Dr. Joseph Crispino talking about the character of Atticus Finch and the place of the book and the culture at large. Well, let me begin by saying thank you for joining me again. I, I, I'm, it's always so much fun to talk to people who love books about books that I love. And uh, when John Wilson recommended you, he's one of the first people I go to to ask, who should I talk to about this? And he recommended mm. you within, I think, like five minutes of me sending him a direct message on Twitter. So that, that told me uh, everything I needed to know, I suppose. Um, how long have you been teaching about uh, Harper Lee and about To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, I haven't taught uh, about the book for very long. I've only been, I've had a, a course I offered a couple of times, a seminar kind of on Atticus Finch in American history. But I've been interested in, in the novel and in the character of Atticus for a very long time. Hmm. I wrote a, a piece back when I was in graduate school that was published in a journal, um, Southern Cultures in 2000. And that was a... You know, and for but it's been very hard to write about the book um, because we had there's such we had such limited sources to think about it. We had just the novel mm-hmm. itself, the one novel that Harper Lee wrote, and we had a you know the things that have been picked over that she'd said about it. You know, in the early 1960s when she spoke on the record. Of course, the last time she spoke on the record to a reporter about her fiction was in uh, March of 1964. So there was just very little to go on in terms of thinking about the novel or thinking about the, the, the you know, the history of it and its reception. So um, I wrote about that back in 2000, but then all of that changed in the summer of 2015 with the publication of Ghosts at a Watchman. Right. And that's what right. really led me to come back to uh to, to kill a mockingbird and to the character and, and opened up a whole new set of uh, avenues that you could explore this work. Mm. Well, I want to come back to go set a watchman at some point. I'm curious to hear your, your uh, opinion of it. Uh, it seems like it's been, the response was somewhat divided, I suppose. Um, but, but you talked about, you were interested in the character of Atticus Finch and I believe he was named by 
certain polls. I don't know if they're reader polls or critic polls, but as the greatest hero in in American literature. And that got me thinking a little bit about why people love him and why people love this book. What is it about both his character and the book itself that resonates so much with people uh, to the extent that it would be even named the most popular or the greatest novel of all time, even among readers in the UK, which I found interesting. And I was wondering if some of that has to do with just a nostalgia factor. Do you think that the nostalgia plays a key role in this book being so beloved um, in particular, maybe because of the movie and the way the movie brought the characters to life in the sixties and because partly people, so many people read it in school, or do you think that there's something else going on um, sort of in the life of the work in our culture? Right. Well, there's the movie and then there's the book and then there's the movie Mm -hmm. and both are beloved. And one of the reasons I think that, I mean, one of the most basic reason that people love the book is because it's a, it's a great book. It's a story well told and it's got vivid characters and it's, um, uh, you know, it moves along quickly and it's a coming of age story. And, but another reason people love it is because they read it early. It's usually one of the first quote unquote serious books that they read because oftentimes they're assigned it in eighth grade or ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that so certainly there's an element of a nostalgia to it in, in people's own lives, and that this is one of the first kind of serious classic works that they're assigned, and people, you know, uh, and so I think that has a lot to do uh, with you know its success in these polls that are taken, that kind of thing. Now you mentioned Atticus Finch being named the greatest hero. That's right. That was in a poll of of of, of movie. Uh, heroes, you know, he was named the number one uh, hero ever, you know, on the on the Hollywood big screen, mm. and that has to do just with the popularity of the of the movie. And it's again, it's a lovely movie. It's Gregory Peck, one of the most beloved stars of his generation and of many generations, and um, and in his only Oscar turning, you know, Oscar winning role, uh, as Atticus Finch. And so, you know, all of that has to, has to do with, um, the popularity of you know, and the ongoing popularity. But I think it, I think it really is about this issue of, um, the book being continually assigned year after year, um, that, that just makes it this kind of phenomenon, um, uh, within American, uh, literary culture. Do you think it deserves, I mean, obviously you, you like the book and you like the character, but do you think it deserves to be, um, considered, you know, up there for the, for that sort of award of the great American novel, as some people claim, you know, it's up there with Hawthorne or Fitzgerald or Mark Twain or, or any number of other books that sort of are in the running for that award. What is such as the award is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I like the book. I mean, the book is clearly has plenty of flaws and um, it's dated in many respects. And, you know, I, I, I don't I didn't come to write this book because I thought it was the great American novel or or because I think that it's a book that every American should read. I, I wrote the book because I think it's a fascinating question. Mm-hmm. As to who Atticus Finch is, and mm-hmm. and who uh, Harper Lee intended him to be, and and how that character has changed over time. That's what interested me about this project is just the fact that, you know, you have this beloved figure 
who serves as a kind of touchstone of morality and decency, kind of an American popular culture. And then you have this other text that's discovered and the character is very, very different. <laughs> and, yeah. and how do you explain that? Yeah. And that's the question that, that provoked me and set me off to use my skills as a researcher and a historian to try to answer that question. Do you think that the the evolving character of Atticus Finch will damper any enthusiasm for the original book over the years? You know, as we look 25, 30 years down the road and 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 children, you know, my kids are six and seven right now, as they begin to read it and they'll have this other text to sort of color the way they view the original text, whereas we didn't have that and you know previous generations didn't have that. So in 25 years, do you think that we'll feel the same way about that book? Do you think that it, it'll be a book that will be considered part of the, you know one of the greats of the American canon and future generations kind of the way it is now? I don't know what will happen in, in 25 years, but in the three years since Watchmen has come out, it has not seemed to dampen at all the enthusiasm and the love of To Kill a Mockingbird and the Atticus Finch of To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, just look at the success and the and the attention that's been given to, you know, the the play that just appeared on yeah. on Broadway, yeah. and so um, I, I don't know, but I actually um, hope that Watchmen is read and studied and considered because I think Watchmen makes Mockingbird all the more interesting, mm-hmm. makes it much so. more interesting and much more um, important. Well, because you see uh, the the degree to which Harper Lee was struggling to shape that character. And you see, you, you see a lot more clearly the kind, the way that she was engaged politically with her own times. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the politics of To Kill a Mockingbird are, um, are muted. The book is set in the South, but 20 years early in the night, you know, in the 1930s, not in the time in the late 1950s when she was writing, but hmm. you see in, 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 in Ghost Set of Watchmen, the degree to which Harper Lee was politically minded and in, in writing and wanting to use her fiction to kind of say something about the political crisis that the South was in. Mm-hmm. And so um, it gives us a lot more information and a lot more to go on in thinking about um, what she was trying to do when she first sat down to, to write a serious, sustained piece of fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it has the same sort of um, literary merit you know kind of i guess line no by line, paragraph no by paragraph. no i mean it's a first novel it's a first yeah. attempt to at know it's an yeah, unedited true. novel there was yeah. no professional editor who had worked with her on that i mean it's it's like a lot it's a work that it's an apprentice work that like most novelists you know they you write a novel and it's not what you want it to be and you put it in a drawer somewhere and it sits there or some novelists burn them you know and they, yeah. they don't want, they don't want anybody to see them yeah, so she it's didn't even know it existed Right, right, yeah. and so it's 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 definitely not the work that that Mockingbird is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some elements, there's some passages that she took straight from Watchmen and she used in in Mockingbird. You know, the description of Makem and Makem's history yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so you know, clearly it's an apprentice work. But what's important that I discovered in my my research for this book that I wrote is that. It's not, as it has often is often been reported, as a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's 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 a it's a separate work. You can see this in the from documents in the archives of of, of, of Harper Collins, Harper Lee's longtime publisher, that she always imagined it as a separate work, and that mm-hmm. and that she talked. There's letters when she talks about conversations with her 
her literary agent, Maurice Crane, who's who encouraging her to put Watchmen aside to work on this earlier novel when she's writing about the life of the characters and maybe somehow she can join them together or that they might be some kind of uh, a series of, uh, you know, be part of a larger kind of narrative arc, this novel and the other novel and maybe connected by a third novel. You know, that that's the kind of... Uh, of discussions they were having it. So she always imagined these characters as the same characters that she was writing about in both. And that's important mm. to, to remember. It's not like she wrote first in Ghost of a Watchman, a version of Atticus Finch as a kind of racist reactionary. And mm. then threw that out and said, no, I'm going to make him this idealistic figure. No, she mm. saw, she saw this as the same character. She was seeing for a different times in this character's life under very different circumstances and from very different point of view. Because, of course, in Mockingbird, we see Atticus, you know, through the eyes of the adolescent scout. And so we see him as, you know, children oftentimes at that age see their parents as this kind of heroic figure. Do you think that the version of Atticus in In To Kill a Mockingbird is, well, you use the word idealistic. Do you think he's too idealistic? Do you think that he that there is something sort of unrealistic about him. And I know that, that to some extent she was trying to at least, well, she was at least somewhat basing the character on her father. Um, but do you, do you think that his sort of idealism rings true and is consistent with the the world she's trying to create or is, well, I'll just leave it there for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a complicated answer. I mean, she did base the character on her father. She based both versions of Atticus were based on her father. One of the things I did in my research is I actually found out a lot more about her father than we've ever really known up to this point. Hmm. Her father, like Atticus Finch, was a small town lawyer and state legislator. But unlike Atticus Finch, he also was the, the uh, uh, partial owner and, and full-time edit, sole editor of the local newspaper, the Monroe Journal. And he edited that paper for 18 years. And I went back and read all 18 years worth of the paper. And he had mm-hmm. this editorial page where he was writing two, three editorial editorials a week on all kinds mm-hmm. of topics under the sun. So I was able to wow. kind of recreate his political worldview. Was and he doing writer? that? Well, he had this kind of labored 19th century prose, okay. you know, <laughs> but he was a, a very astute uh you know observer of the world he was opinionated he had strong ideas he was he had only an eighth grade education that was wow. the highest grade he ever completed mm-hmm. but he was a kind of um self-educated he's kind of lincoln-esque in his reading habits mm-hmm. and habits of self-education and, and, you, do, and um, you do see that in the book with Atticus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they were huge readers. They loved books. They loved uh, history, English history, Southern history. Um, And so um, you can see how um, from those editorials, how, um, you know, A.C. Lee, the name of her father, Massa Coleman Lee, people call him A.C. But A.C. Lee, you know, wrote um, editorials denouncing lynching and mob violence in the 1930s. You know, uh, he wrote editorials in the 1930s denouncing uh, demagoguery. He couldn't stand Huey Long. He denounced him as a demagogue who was dangerous, dangerous, dangerous figure. So you see these kind of principled stands he would take in his editorial page that could clearly inspire the kind of idealism of Atticus Finch in, in To Kill a Mockingbird. 
what you also see, uh, particularly by the late 1930s and particularly by the world, the, the war years, World War II, which was setting loose all kinds of, of forces, uh, reform impulses of social and political uh, movements um, in Southern political life, that you see how he um, begins to defend in, in very traditional ways, you know, state rights and the Southern segregationist position such that you could see that in, in Ghost Set of Watchmen, those passages when Atticus is defending kind of the South to his adult daughter, Jean Louise, you know, those, those things come directly from some of his editorials, you know, could have come directly from some of his editorials in the, mm. you know, 1944, 45, 46 mm. in those years. Do you, uh, yeah, Attic, when I first read Ghost Head of Watchmen, I remember being sort of torn because if it did feel like a, it felt like an unedited book. And so I wondered if it, it would have been more, it would have been better served to have been sort of released through more academic means as opposed to as through, you know, as this newly published book from a major publisher right. that's, you know, it's meant to sort of operate in the same realm as so many, as to kill a mockingbird. It, it might've been more, it might've been better served as a sort of, um, as something for academics <laughs> to study and then share through that means and through their own, um, through their own analysis of it. Do you think that it would have been better served that way? Or do you think it was appropriately released as sort of a major, a major book through a major publisher, given that it Depends. hadn't been edited and so forth? Yeah, I guess it depends on who, in terms of whether it would have been better served, it depends on who you're serving. (laughs) True. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think it was better served for for the publisher to have it released as a novel. Um, Yeah. Yeah, You know, and and I do think the publisher had uh, certain restrictions placed on them as to what Harper Lee's on uh, and uh, how she wanted it to be released. You know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't just their call. It was the author's call. Sure, um, sure. So, um, you know, I, those are those are questions that I don't uh, have good answers to as to how it should have been released. But I, my feeling about the novel is whatever you think about it as a work of fiction, and there are a lot of people who don't who see it like you do that it's not a very um, polished work of fiction. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating as a historical document. Absolutely, yeah. as this yeah. is this document that gives us insight into what she was trying to do. Uh, and so that's, that's how I approached it. And I, and I think it's fascinating on those terms. So Harper Lee, she, she was something of a, well, I don't want to say recluse. I don't think she was, my understanding is she wasn't quite like, you know, JD Salinger, for example. No, she Um, wasn't. She she kept to herself and kind of seemed to avoid the limelight. She didn't prefer the fame that came with publishing such a significant book, but she didn't, well, that we, that we know of, she didn't, she certainly didn't publish anything else. Um, so what do you think that her legacy is as a, as a, as a, you know, as a writer in American culture, uh, having produced just the one book and then sort of slipping away into, into some semblance of privacy anyway? I mean, how, how do you think she should be remembered? Well, as the author of one of the most beloved books in American literature. Do you think that um, she belongs well, uh, I guess this is kind of an unfair question, but do you think she belongs in the in the you know can, the American canon with the Hawthorns and Fitzgeralds and Twains and James Fenimore Cooper and those other writers? I don't know. I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a literary expert. I'm a historian, sure, and I sure. really I'm not really I don't have much to say or 
really all that great of interest in trying to figure out her place in the canon or yeah. you know that kind of thing. Yeah, fair but enough. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to the to the li- literature professors <laughs> to do that sort of thing. Yeah, fair enough. I I'm a. Uh... It's it's always so fascinating to be a character like her, and in some ways, you know, I, th- I think she she is a, a very interesting character herself, much like the characters that she creates. Um, and you know, from her friendship with Truman Capote to the way that she's kind of slipped and slipped out of the the public eye, she is one of those people that seems like she would have been great to get to know. Did you ever get a chance to meet her or any of her family? No, I did not meet uh, Harper Lee. I started she. She, no, I did not meet her. I've met her um, her niece and two of her nephews. Uh, or I've spoken with one nephew on the phone, and I've met okay. uh, the other nephew, and and actually have uh, spoken with him often. He came and visited one of my classes here at Emory, and um, he is an incredibly knowledgeable and great source of insight about his his aunt's fiction. He's a he himself is a former. Um, college professor and retired college professor has a PhD in literature from Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Ed Connor is his name. And Ed okay. was enormously helpful in, in with his, and, and also uh, her, her niece, Molly Lee, who lives in Alabama. Both of them were, had um, lots of memories of not only their aunt, which I was interested in, but also their grandfather, who I was really mm-hmm. interested in this book, you know, Harper yeah. Lee's father in, in trying to get to know, understand him as a person so so they were really helpful in uh for me in the in the research that i was doing Hmm. do you think that she um was it purely an aversion to the fame do you think that that caused her to sort of slip out of the the public eye or did she do you think she was feeling a sort of pressure to to produce something that could possibly live up to to kill a mockingbird and so she just felt like she'd she couldn't possibly do that. So she didn't, I don't know what I said. She didn't make an attempt because I don't know that, but so she didn't, she didn't pursue that to the point where she published anything at any rate. Well, the, the real answer is I don't know, but, but the, but the, the other, another answer is, you know, she herself talked about, um, in, in, in the kind of, you know, offhand way about the pressures of trying to write another great American classic, you know, that, you know, she talked about how she wrote a a really great book and, you know, uh, it's hard to write those. And she was content to let, to let it stand by itself. You know, if you're not going to write something this good, why, why put something else out there? And, and, you know, she was quoted as saying something along those lines, you know, um, when answering, this question about why another not why not another novel so so um yeah i think it's fair to assume that that was that was part of it she she held herself to a very high standard and didn't want to put out anything that was not up to that standard i assume there's no evidence or suggestion that there are any other works stored away in any other lock boxes or anything is there <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean there may well be um i think there are materials that Harper Lee's estate has that people have not seen. I don't know what the extent of them is. Uh, I couldn't uh, really get a sense of that yeah. from um, any research that I'd done. But um, but there may be. It's we don't we don't really know. Hmm. Well, here's my final question for you. I know we. I know you have, I told you 30 minutes, and we're coming up on that. So here's my final question. Flannery yeah. O'Connor sort of famously wrote to somebody, I believe, in a letter 
somewhat somewhat snarkily saying, I wonder if all these people who are buying up this book realize they're buying a children's book. And yeah. you mentioned, you know, for a lot of people, it is sort of a first, uh, quote, serious book. Um, and it's one of the, you know, it's commonly assigned in ninth grade. And then kind of we spend months or weeks or whatever writing analytical essays about it. But so it's, yeah. for many people, it's one of the first books that people really begin to study pretty closely. Do you think that O'Connor's contention that it is basically a children's book is is fair and that her snark <laughs> was justified? I mean, maybe maybe that's a un, that's probably not a fair way to ask the question because I su- suppose her snark was not justified given what we know now. But do you think that it is it is should be best remembered as a as a book for children or do you think that it deserves something um sort of more serious, um, a more serious approach than that. Well, I think Harper Lee herself um, was quoted uh, in a, a book that was written about her that um, that she was glad that the category of young adult literature didn't exist at the time when the book came out because she thought that it might have gotten characterized that way and, therefore, and thereby not have uh, kind of won the the broader audience that it did and you know i i think it, there is a, a kind of ya element to the book in the sense that the main uh you know the main protagonists are the children and and the the main drama in the novel in the story is that the children's coming of age mm-hmm. and they're coming to realize that this beloved town uh, that they have is full of all these mysteries and all of these injustices that they had no idea about and, and coming to grips with that and wrestling with that is, is the main drama of the, of the story. And that's, and that's a story, that's a kind of classic narrative of young adult literature. But my feeling is that there's some, you know, even if it were ca- categorized as young adult literature, there's some really wonderful works of young adult literature sure. and, and yeah, wonderful absolutely. works that, that, um, that endure and that are important uh, and that are, that are vital. I mean, separate piece may well have been a young adult literature if it came out today, hmm. you know, hmm. um, you can imagine uh, lots of, of, of different books that would be categorized differently if they had appeared today. Mm-hmm. But I think still um, uh, are, you know, a, a really accomplished, beautiful pieces of uh, literature that uh, have been and will continue to be read by young people and adults for many years to come. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with me. I've enjoyed this conversation and um, I hope people will check out your book on Atticus Finch. That was published in 2017. Is that right? My book was published in May of 2018. Okay. 2018. Oh, so it's, it's recent. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have to do the book tour and all that? Yeah, yeah, we did some some nice events in in uh, throughout the summer and in the fall, and um, yeah, it's been a really fun book to talk about because it's been uh, it's a because you know Mockingbird is so uh, so loved uh, that um, it's it's you can engage a, a really broad and interested audience with this kind of work. So that's been very gratifying. Have you found that people tend to actually end up? really what they're interested in as much as anything is just Atticus Finch more say than Harper Lee or the backstory behind the novel. I mean, it seems like he has his own sort of place within uh, our culture, you know, all to himself. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 amazing how you know people will talk about Atticus Finch like he's a real person, and you know, and some people don't don't quite it doesn't register them with them that he isn't a real person. You know, <laughs> um, they have such an identification. Well, not just with Atticus, but with all the the characters in the novel, yeah. but particularly yeah. with Atticus. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Joseph Crispino for chatting with me, and thanks to Adam Andrews for joining me as well. And of course, thanks to all of you who've been listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating, leave a review, help us spread the word. I'd be really grateful for that. And of course, don't forget about our other podcasts here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. You can find The Daily Poem by searching Daily Poem. You can find Close Reads, where we talk about novels by searching Close Reads. And you can find The Plays The Thing, which is a podcast that focuses on all the plays of Shakespeare one act at a time by searching The Plays The Thing wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can also go to closereadspods.com. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of Libromania. Mania.